This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. This episode of Popaganda is sponsored by the Feminist Sticker Club. Do you like surprises in the mail, fun stickers, and feminist art? Feminist Sticker Club will send you an original sticker each month for only $2.50. Subscribe or gift a subscription at feministstickerclub.com. As a consumer of news these days, I hear a lot of anti-immigrant sentiment. From politicians to just media outlets, there's a spreading idea that immigrants are somehow un-American or dangerous. And that's just so in contrast to the actual lives and experiences of immigrants and their families. So on this episode of Propaganda, we're highlighting actual immigrant stories and specifically stories of kids of immigrants. I'm here with Amy Lamb. Hi, Amy. Hey. Amy, this was your idea for a show. This was something you thought would be really interesting to explore. Can you tell us about why this is something that you think was so special and so important that you wanted to devote a whole episode to it? Right. I just think that as a child of immigrants, like oftentimes our stories aren't reflected to us in mainstream media. And this was this is like a really great opportunity to talk about um, our stories. And like there is no like monolithic narrative about the immigrant experience. It's so different for so many different people. And, you know, a lot of the stories that are going to be on the show today are about being child of immigrants and like maybe being born in America or having come to America when you're really young or being um, coming to an, another country. And um, how you have to like straddle the two worlds of, um, you know, your native culture and like this new culture that you're born into and what that can feel like. In thinking about what the show was going to be like or, or why this should be an important thing we can talk about, I thought about this, um, I hate saying this, like, like ancient Chinese proverb or whatever, <laughs> but there's this, there's this saying that like um, Chinese folks say like presently, it's to eat bitter. To eat bitter. Yeah, to eat better. And and it's this idea that like you might have to like put up with something that might be like uncomfortable or challenging or like something that's really awful in order to achieve um, a greater goal. You know, and I don't know if it says that says a lot about like Chinese people, <laughs> but I think that it it says a lot about like the immigrant experience for many folks. Um, some people eat more better than other people. Um, but this is such a small phrase um, can be applied to anybody, not just the immigrant folks. But I think especially for immigrant folks and their children is that because like there's this, there's this notion that like, you know, especially for um, being an immigrant to America, is that like once you've arrived here, like your um, your life will somehow exponentially uh, be more amazing or like all the opportunities will unfold in front of you. Um, but the reality is that like the struggle to survive in America and raising a family in, in a completely foreign place, uh, in, in particularly for like refugee immigrants um, who oftentimes are not like prepared to, to do this move, um, that struggle to survive is so invisible. Like their stories are so marginalized. Um, like our stories are just not reflected to us. Uh, so I think this is something that like we need to talk about. Is this something you can talk to your own family about? I know your parents are refugees. Did 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 you talk to them these days or when you were growing up about how life in the United States is not amazing and flawless? Instead, there's a lot of struggle as immigrants who are coming here. Um, no. <laughs> like I, there's no other way of saying no because. I think that especially for refugee immigrants uh, in Asian communities, the trauma of having 
the situation and why they have arrived here is must be so such an insurmountable thing for them to process that they don't have the language for and that's another barrier right like um, i don't speak chinese good enough for my parents to communicate this to me and then my parents don't speak english good enough for us to like communicate deeply about these things and i don't think it's it's like um it's it's a thing that's just reserved for our, our very specific like asian refugee experiences i've heard this from um like latino communities i've heard it from uh, south asian communities i've heard it from um african immigrant communities you know folks from those communities where um there's this huge vast ocean of uh disconnect between like our native cultures and where our parents came from and and sometimes like their inability to communicate uh what it was because the like the, the crux of it is that like our parents were so busy surviving they didn't have time to tell us about um what they came from so you know, as adults now, we can like think about it and look back on it and ask them questions. But I find that like even my own parents, it's something that's really hard for them to talk about. So we kind of have to like talk amongst ourselves um, about like what is our experience as growing up as children of immigrants um, and having to navigate that. And how do we navigate that with our parents? And, and all of these questions are something that, as you pointed out, millions of Americans are dealing with. But we don't often see represented in pop culture. You know, you can sort of name the number of um, third culture kids on TV, maybe on one hand, maybe on maybe, maybe on, on less than one hand, <laughs> maybe on two fingers. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, which is which is incredible when you think about like you know this idealized notion of America being um, land of immigrants. Mm-hmm. But when when in popular media when we talk about immigrants, it's like uh, like the leech of society. Um, but this country was built on like the backs and labor of immigrants and enslaved um, African people who were brought over here um, against their will. So if we don't recognize this and like the contributions of folks who 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 are not indigenous to this country, um, then, you know, we're leaving out this huge swath of conversation about what real American history looks like. And, you know, oftentimes when we think about um, history, we think about it as like the static document that, uh, you know, are are in the pages between um, thick history textbooks from school. But history is is an evolving document. And um, for a very long time, like an only a very specific set of people, old white men were the ones who told history and I think that like in a show like this we can like um, amplify the voices and produce a different type of history of what it means to be in America. Yeah our history really depends on who's writing it and so hopefully today we're going to help rewrite some of that history. Thanks so much for um, organizing this show Amy. Yeah thanks for listening. My dear dear friend You always creep in Just when I'm getting by Tell me why When I can almost When I can almost walk tall You make sure I remember exactly The first language Julie Sedevi learned was Czech. But when her family moved from Czechoslovakia to Montreal when she was still in preschool, Julie immersed herself in French and English. As she started preschool, English became the dominant language in her home, despite her parents' preference for Czech. 
When her father died a few years ago, Julie realized how much losing that first language had also made her lose a connection to culture and family that's woven into the words we speak aloud. Julie, who grew up to become a professor of linguistics and psychology, wrote about the science behind first languages in the current issue of Nautilus magazine. In her article, The Strange Persistence of First Languages, Julie writes, Losing your native tongue unmoors you not only from your own early life, but from the entire culture that shaped you. You lose access to the books, films, stories, and songs that articulate the values and norms that you've absorbed. You lose the embrace of an entire community or nation for whom your family's odd quirks are not quirks at all. You lose your context. This connection can be devastating. Julie took the time to talk to me on the phone about her history and her article. Julie, can you tell us about your parents and your relationship to language as a kid? Yeah, so, you know, my, my experience as an immigrant is extremely typical. Um, I came over with my family as a small child. Uh, I was two when we left what was Czechoslovakia at the time, now, now the Czech Republic, uh, the place where we came from. And kind of th- we threaded our way through Europe for a couple of years and then landed in Montreal when I was four years old. Um, so I was introduced to English really at the age of five when I started kindergarten. Um, and like many immigrant kids, as soon as you start schooling in English, English just takes over um, the family life. And especially, you know, in a family where there were eventually six children in the house. Um, so we spoke English with each other and that just kind of dominated the conversations. So was there ever a conflict um, about the language that you spoke at home? Like, do you remember what it was like to come home speaking English when your dad spoke Czech? I don't know that we experienced a conflict. For us, it was really a a gradual transition. So there was absolutely a time when, especially my father, he really never did um, feel comfortable speaking in English or French, which was uh, the other major language in Montreal. So he would almost always speak to us in Czech, even into adulthood, and we would simply reply in English. He would protest. He was disappointed. It was clear that he was disappointed that we were less immersed in the language than he would have liked to have seen us. Um, but, you know, it, it, beyond that sense of disappointment, it, there, we didn't really have fights about it in the family. It was just kind of a gradual seamless transition, and I suspect that that's true in many, many families like ours. Do you remember what you thought about your first language as a kid? Like, did you think it was cool to be able to speak Czech, or was it seen as dorky? <laughs> uh, you know, it um, it just kind of felt increasingly useless to me as a child. Uh, so, you know, the only interest my friends at school ever had in Czech was in They wanted to learn how to swear in Czech. And unfortunately, my parents never, ever swore. And to this day, I really can't swear competently in Czech at all. I know in theory what the bad words are, but um, I can't use them in the right contexts. So I wasn't really able to oblige. Um, And, you know, my friends quickly lost interest, and that was that. So I never had the sense that they thought it was cool that I I knew a language like Czech. And um, it just kind of faded into the background and became something that I didn't anticipate using. I think the historical circumstances kind of added to that. So when I was growing up, um, you know, the, the country, Czechoslovakia, was still behind the Iron Curtain at the time. 
My family had left uh, the country illegally. We had defected. So there was no possibility of going back. Uh, so unlike some immigrants, there were no you know, annual pilgrimages back uh, to visit relatives. For all we knew, we would never set foot in that country again. Looking back now as a professional linguist, Julie, what do you think was lost when you stopped speaking your native language? I, I didn't realize what was lost until well into adulthood. Um, I think, you know, many, many young people are so focused on their future, you kind of um, orient in that direction. Especially as an immigrant, you realize that your comfort in the new country is going to depend entirely on the success of your integration. That's a pressure, you know, that, that exists, I think, every day, whether it's one that you're conscious of or not. So it kind of pushes you away from your original culture in, in a very powerful way. Um, but I think for me, um, my father's death was uh, a huge event in the realization of feeling regret for my disconnection from my culture. So he died very, very suddenly without warning. And he was really the last person with whom I had spoke Czech. And it just kind of hit me that... Um, you know, along with his death, I had lost this occasional experience of speaking in a language that I thought I didn't value very much, but all of a sudden it felt like a real loss that that would be gone from my life. Um, so I think that was the time when I started to really think about um, what I had given up and, and just letting go so easily of my native culture. And a lot of that is wrapped up with language. I think um, the sense of loss came from realizing that when I spoke in Czech with my dad or heard him speak Czech and answered in English, it did somehow um, come with a richness of memory that came from my childhood. So the lack of Czech in my life was almost like a silencing of a, a certain part of my life, the very early experiences that I had. Um, you know, there's really interesting research that suggests that the language that you retrieve memories in, you know, that you, that you build up associations that are connected to languages. So, for example, if you ask a bilingual person to, re to talk about their childhood in one language as opposed to another, they'll be likely to retrieve those memories that occurred in that particular language. Um, so I think the loss of Czech for me made some of those memories feel more distant, like they, they were less connected somehow. Are there some specific words or phrases in that that change dramatically for you when you say them in Czech versus English? Yeah, so, well, some of the big ones are actually the words that you use in referring to your parents. So um, Czech has these words maminka and tatinek, and they're used even by adults. They're very, very affectionate words, so they're they're words that take on the diminutive form. So Czech has these little endings that you can tack on to names um, that kind of create a sense of intimacy or that are used as, as diminutives. Um, but it's very common for, you know, even pe people in their 50s and 60s to refer to their parents with these very soft, affectionate names. You don't really see that in English. Um, you know, children will say mommy and daddy, but then when they grow up, they say mom and dad, and that doesn't have quite the same relationship. So uh, 
the absence of, you know, once we started to refer to our parents as mom and dad, that immediately uh, takes away some of the softness, some of the affection. Um, and for me, that was kind of emblematic of the way that language affected our relationship with our parents. I think that the fact that we spoke to them in English generally, which was stripped of all of those really early tender childhood memories, um, kind of created a bit of a distance between ourselves and our parents. And, you know, that's even amplified by the fact that the very words that we used to, to refer to them lacked in English that, that softness, that tenderness. So what, what do you call your mom now? I do use the Czech word, yes. Yes, so um, I, uh, I do now insist on, on talking to my mother in Czech as much as possible. Okay, so in addition to your personal experience, of course, you're also a linguist who studies language. Can you tell us about how the science uh, about native languages impacts our identities? Yeah, so there's a, a, a pretty quickly growing body of literature that's looked at some of the effects of language loss. It's pretty clear that there are a real consequences of losing a connection with a native language comes with many of the Aboriginal communities around the world. So this has been seen in Canada, in the U.S., in Australia, uh, when people have been separated from their native languages um, as individuals and certainly as communities, uh, that tends to correlate with, um, you know, a lot of negative effects. So, uh, for example, one study in Canada and British Columbia found that there were much lower rates of youth suicide in communities that had preserved their native language. Um, an Australian study showed much lower rates of um, alcohol abuse and violence in communities that had retained their Aboriginal languages. So it, at, at a larger scale like this, it really does seem to, uh, to be connected somehow with a sense of well-being. Now that you've gone to the Czech Republic and relearned your native language, how does that impacted your identity? I feel it's been huge, actually. Um, so... You know, for one thing, I discovered that the language actually came back surprisingly quickly. That made it really easy for me to feel reconnected to my culture and to be able to um, have conversations with people in a way that I never would if I was learning the language fresh as an adult. But it also, I think, reawakened for me a lot of these latent memories that were associated with Czech. So since I've come back, you know, I feel that... Um, uh, in a sense, I think what's one of the effects has been really interesting to me because uh, I feel more deeply connected to the Czech part of my identity. But in doing that, it, it's actually made me feel more comfortable in my North American identity as well. So I feel somehow more at home here because, in a way, I've been able to put my finger on the fact that you know, identifying why there's been sometimes a little bit of discomfort in my relating to people here in North America. I have a, a framework for that now, and I have an alternative, um, just an al al alternative viewpoint, I guess, that feels more coherent to me. So it's almost like I can kind of switch perspectives a little bit more readily because that Czech identity is more fully formed now.
Linguist Julie Sedevi's article, The Strange Persistence of Native Languages, is a Nautilus magazine. You can follow her on Twitter at SoldOnLanguage. So 12 days ago, someone named TK Matunda emailed me and asked about being an intern for Bitch. She lives in Ontario, and I said it wouldn't work out because we're based in Portland and interns work in our office. But I asked if there was something else she was interested in writing about, some other way to be involved besides volunteering in our office. She wrote back immediately, saying she'd love to write about growing up as a feminist with immigrant parents. Though she lives in Canada, her mom and dad are originally from Kenya. She wrote, I'll cover navigating conversations on privilege, attempting to unlearn cultural thinking, and ultimately finding a way to respect the culture while upholding feminist ideas. The essay that she ended up writing blew me away. She's just 24, by the way. Here's TK Matunda. I have to go. I'm the firstborn, my father states, arranging his papers on his desk. Don't you have two older sisters? Why can't they do the ceremony? I ask. After a long silence, my father quietly says, they don't count. I remember this scene all too well. It was late July 2010. A couple days earlier, my father's father had passed away. My dad and everything around him unraveled. Grandpa was in Nairobi and needed to be buried by his firstborn son. We were in Toronto, although at that very moment it felt like we were right in the heart of Kenya. His words stayed in my head. They don't count. His sisters don't count, so does that mean I don't count? I wanted to ask him, but I knew better than to start a fight. I already knew what he meant. It wasn't the first time stuff like this had come up. At 19, I was fully aware of the realities of my background. I knew that in Kenyan culture, power and control were handed down the male branch of the family tree. Women, although necessary, were not given the same options and respect as their male counterparts. My aunts had no significance in the burial ceremony. Their mourning was unspecial contrary to my father's, who was becoming the patriarch, the new leader to carry on the family legacy. Women are not allowed a legacy. For the longest time, the simple fact of life lodged itself deep in my brain. I compartmentalized that as a facet of Kenyan culture that both simultaneously applied to my life and didn't. I am a child of immigrants. Kenyan in origin, but Canadian in culture. So the rules of my parents' world only had bearing in certain circles. Those circles were not in charge 100% of the time, but they were still in charge. I remember being five and seeing my mother clean, cook, study, and go to work while my father flew back and forth from Kenya. My mom used to tell us stories of him forgetting to pick us up from daycare since, for him, Family was allowed to be an afterthought. When I was eight, I took my first trip to Kenya. In a borrowed white Honda, we traveled deep into the mountains on the southwest side of the country. 
As I looked over the rolling hills of lush green tea fields where my parents spent their childhood, the car kicked up red iron-filled dust that settled at my feet. My parents told me this land, their family land, is passed only to sons. Daughters get married off for dowry. Nothing in this beautiful landscape in front of me could ever be mine. I was to be a part of some other man's wealth. I remember being 12 and wondering why I was always sent to make tea while my brother was nowhere to be seen. Or being 18 and so afraid to go against the image that my family had of their obedient little girl that I stuck out a four-year degree in a subject that made me miserable. They were still in charge. For the first two decades of my life, feminism was just a word. It wasn't a particularly good or evil word. For me as a kid, the word conjured up sepia-toned images of suffragettes, bra burnings, and hairy armpits. What those suffragettes were marching for was steeped in the past and didn't seem relevant to my life. Those fights were won, and to my knowledge, I was pretty liberated. I couldn't see how my own world was ruled by systems of oppression. I believe men and women should be treated equally, and for the most part, I thought my actions reflected that idea. I would poke fun at the Kenyan ways of doing things because it seemed so ridiculous. But besides from the occasional pointed joke, I never did anything to change the obvious imbalance. I rationalized away all the discrepancies I saw in my community, or spoke with the other Kenyan women about it, always in jest and always in the kitchen. And I didn't see a problem with making fun of the culture my parents came from. When I first started reading about feminist theory and learning how extensive the power system was, I thought back to my family. I thought about the head of the household mentality and all the ways patriarchal thinking had warped the branches of our family tree. I became angry. All I could see in my parents, uncles, and aunts was this poisonous thinking ingrained deep in their actions and beliefs. I couldn't make jokes about their habits anymore, but I couldn't speak up either. Questioning their reasoning would be criticizing the culture and the traditions that were even more important as they tried to hold on to their identity in Canada. I couldn't talk openly to my parents about dowries or how every achievement in my life would be coupled with comments of the increasing of my bride price. Tradition was tradition, and it must be respected. My parents and I seemed to come from different worlds. But as I got older, I realized how much our worlds overlapped. In Toronto, we were a community of outsiders, trying to establish ourselves in a new place. I remember hearing heated conversations at community gatherings about racial discrimination. The men would talk verbosely about being treated poorly for just being African. They would rant about being well-educated from good backgrounds, more qualified than their competition for jobs, but having to do minimum wage work as pizza delivery men and convenience store clerks just to make ends meet. They understood what it was like to be persecuted for existing in a world that wasn't built in their favor. Yet they couldn't see how their own thoughts and actions impacted the women in their lives. They focused on the loss of their birthright to power and domination and ignored their own roles as oppressors to their own wives, sisters, and daughters. 
But as our Kangen community flourished in Canada, things did change. As a community, each family's success depended on everyone's success. Women have always played a big role in Kangen families. My name, Trufina Kemunto, honors two women. Trufina, my mom's favorite grandmother, and Kemunto, my dad's favorite grandmother. Both of them were fiercely respected matriarchs who changed the way women were educated in their communities. But their kind of change had to always be done artfully. Tradition was tradition, and it must be respected. To be openly defiant was dangerous. Threats of beatings loomed around each corner. Yet as my family lived in Toronto for two decades, I could see my mother, aunts, and cousins enjoying a new level of agency. They were boldly taking charge of their lives, becoming new, unimagined versions of themselves. It was disrupting the community in awesome ways. Some rules were disregarded, and women openly started doing what they thought was best. One of my aunts took a research job in Iqaluit, Nunavut, one of the most northern territories in Canada. Another divorced her husband after years of domestic abuse. Another even started teaching Swahili to the Canadian-born members of the community. Feminism has many faces, and it must work in different ways in different places. That's something I only learned through the women in my family. Although most of them won't admit it, they are feminists in their own right. They show strength, intelligence, perseverance, and solidarity on a daily basis. Slowly, I've been able to become more confident and comfortable with sharing my opinions. Now, at 24, I can talk about some of the problems I see in our lives that stem from the power imbalance. With certain family members, I can bring up mental illness and alcoholism. Together, we take on a difficult task of parsing culture and traditions from anti-woman sentiments that hold us all back. We sit around the oak table by the kitchen, cups filled to the brim with Caricho Gold, the best brand of tea in the universe, sharing the latest events of our lives. The smell of mandazi, a fried dough dish, fills the room. We will sit, talking from when the room is bathed in sun to the moment we have to turn on the lights. Having a space to discuss such topics is important and allows us to feel connected. Yet it takes more than discussion for real change to happen. Breaking beliefs and habits that have been bred into you from birth is a long and arduous process that takes a lot of self-reflection and forgiveness especially when they are so entwined with traditions that link you back to a very important part of your cultural identity. Figuring out how to apply predominantly westernized feminist thought into an African background is a minefield. I always have to question how western supremacy thinking is fueling my judgment and what are realistic actions that can help improve the lives of people in my community. My journey towards understanding is just beginning. And as I enter the storm of learning and unlearning, I hope that the Kangen parts of my identity remain unweathered. I know that regardless of my birthright or lack thereof, I do count. And deep down, I know my father sees that too.
That was TK Matunda. You can read a text version of her story on bitchmedia.org. Hopefully, you'll see a lot more of her writing in the future. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about first-generation families and reflecting on what it's like to grow up with immigrant parents in the United States and Canada. This next story comes to us from Cincinnati-based journalist Belinda Kai, who was compelled to find out the story of her father's life in China. My dad and I have no trouble talking about school and day-to-day stuff, but he usually dodged questions about his life in China. Over time, I decided I had to know the full story. I called him up and asked him to tell me more about his past. He began with his childhood when he was about nine in China's Hubei province. A lot of what he told me was familiar until he described a scene at the village's local theater. He heard some commotion and thought it might be a fun show. He was excited, so he poked his head into the door. People were, you know, standing and shouting. I saw the young people wearing yellow uniforms, and they were talking very loud, very emotionally, passionately, and they were finger-pointing one man on the right side of the stage. So I looked carefully, it was my father. I already knew that my grandfather, a plant manager at the printing house, was persecuted for once having served the Nationalist Party. But I had no idea that my father had witnessed the public humiliation. His worst nightmare was being played out in front of him, literally on stage. From then on, the entire family's life became hell. They were shunned by their community. During Cultural Revolution, as you know, if anybody from a family was ranked as anti-revolutionary, then the whole family would be affected. I just felt very shameful And also, I felt very nervous. I felt very scared. My grandpa was sent away to a labor camp for four years. My father never once visited him there because of government restrictions. The closest he got was when he tried to deliver clothes to him, but the guard wouldn't let him in. The last time my father saw his dad was as he lay dying. So the doctors used this equipment very much like electric shock. Everybody was so busy trying to save my father's life. And my mom, she would say, well, that was it. That was it. That was it. I know it's hard to save him. When I watched them bury my father, I had a little stick in my hand. So I was squeezing that little stick in my hand so hard, so that that stick cut through my skin, my, my hand, you know, even started to bleed. So that's how I, you know, controlled my sadness. You've really come to terms with this, but, you know, for someone like me to hear it as a story, it's upsetting. Um, you Knowing it's my grandpa, I guess, too, who I never got to meet. You know, when you think about that, you know, that four years. My father recounted these memories, decades in the past, without so much as a tremble in his voice. I, on the other hand, lost it. The little details of his childhood floored me. To keep his emotions contained, he's held onto that stick for decades since. My dad got asylum in the U.S. as an exchange student during the Tiananmen Square protests. My mom immigrated three years later, and then I was soon born in 1990. 
I remember my dad working ceaselessly in the IT industry and climbing fast. He set the bar high for my sisters and me. Yes, he was working for a better life, but he was also working to forget, and I didn't realize that. If I always dwell on the past, probably I would be mentally ill and I could not do anything like uh, a parasite of society. My past uh, is still with me every time when I uh, thought about my father, but I try not to uh, think about that. You have to forget about what happened to your family, and you have to look into the future. You have to think about your children and their lives. Why did you keep all the details from your children? If I told you, probably that would impact your early lives. So you would have thought, well, uh, we live in a pity uh, family. If you didn't want to ask me, if you didn't become interested, I probably would uh, not talk to you forever. The thing that stunned me most was that he wasn't angry about what China did to his family. He was humiliated. He was afraid of becoming a parasite to society, and he wanted to spare us anything resembling shame, pity, or self-doubt. That's the past. So we can put that down. Then don't take that as a burden on your back. You cannot walk straight. My father is more vulnerable than I had ever realized. His memories of his father are jarring, but he kept his burdens off our backs so we could walk straight and have normal lives. I have no raw, vivid recollections of my father, just the ordinary ones. Eating dinner at our favorite restaurant together, going to Disney World, doing my math homework together. My dad protected us from his past by rechanneling his own pain into love. Belinda, what's what's the story behind um, this piece that you put together? Why did you start pursuing this, and what what was the intended goal here? So I had always known kind of vague details about my um, parents' histories back in China, but they were never really open about it. So one day I just decided that I wanted to hear the full story. So I kind of confronted my dad, and he gave me kind of like an overview, but it still wasn't enough. So I decided for a project that I was doing for a public radio class in grad school, I would actually have him、uh, be the focal point of of a radio documentary, and it would be all about his past, kind of you know the hidden things that he had endured that I had never really gotten to understand growing up. It was so moving,、um, even though. I had known some of that before. I never got the little nitty gritty details. So, working on it was just a really amazing experience because I was both learning how to kind of like construct this、uh, dynamic like radio documentary, but also I was learning something that was so personal to me and so interesting that I had never really delved into before. Were you surprised that he opened up and talked to you about these things? If it wasn't a story you'd ever heard before, yeah, a little bit,、um, because he was and always has been kind of private about his personal life, and for him, it's like all about moving on, and it's hard for him to look back because he's all about improving himself, looking toward the future. So. It was a little surprising that he was able to fully open up about that because I could tell、um, 
it was difficult for him and it had been just so many decades. Um, but I'm really glad that he did. Mm-hmm. How, how did talking to your father about his story of immigrating to the United States from China make you feel differently about yourself and your own identity? It just made me really appreciate everything I have. I always have. Um, I've always known that being raised as an American and having my parents be so supportive means that I'm a really privileged individual. And, um, you know, I've been able to achieve a lot of things in my life because of their support. And knowing that my parents, A, didn't really have the same support that I do, um, growing up in a completely different kind of sociopolitical um, era, and knowing that they endured so much, um, especially my father, you know, with the loss of his father and just being subjected to this really, you know, kind of abusive political movement. Um, it just made me really appreciate what I have even more than I did. And also it made me have definitely a closer bond with my parents, just, you know, kind of this deeper understanding that was never there before. Let me be And now on the show, we're going to have some poetry. Amy Lamb is here to, to introduce uh, a wonderful poet. Amy, who are we going to hear from? Uh, Fatima Ashkar. So, so tell us about Fatima Ashkar and how you met her. So I was first introduced to her work um, because she did this amazing poem that went viral, which is an odd thing to say that a poem went viral. Um, but it's called Pluto Shits on the Universe. Today, I broke your solar system. Oops. My bad. Your graph said I was supposed to make a nice little loop around the sun. Nah, I chaos like a motherfucker. Ain't nobody can chart me. All the other planets, they think I'm annoying. They think I'm an escaped moon running free. It's just such an amazing poem <laughs> to think that um, for her to like embody this planet at the edge of our solar system um, and what it means to like in her her place in the world. Uh, so I was introduced to her in that way. And then um, I met her at a local Portland reading, uh, which was a very white space. And and it was like when we met each other, we were like oasis for one another. And uh, we got to talking because she's also a fellow Kundiman Fellow, uh, which is a, a writing fellowship for Asian American uh, fiction and poets, fiction writers and poets. And um, I just wanted to learn more about like how she became a poet and on what are common themes with her work. Um, and she's just a, a, a really great person to talk to about art. 
Um, well, we're going to hear your interview with Fatima, and she reads us a poem, too, I believe. Um, let's get into it. So I want to start off by asking uh, how you found your way to poetry. I found my way to poetry through spoken word. When I was a freshman in college, I joined the spoken word poetry team at my school, and I instantly fell in love with the art form because it was just so stunningly radical to me to see all of these people on stage sharing their own stories and talking about themselves with such confidence. And so there was something inside me, I think, that woke up and made me think that this was something I wanted to try to do. And I've just been doing it ever since. Was it something that you felt like you had something to say or, um, and, and what about like, poetry versus like, you know, filmmaking or writing prose or expressing yourself in another way? Yeah, I think I did feel like I had something to say. I mean, growing up, I uh, did theater all the time and I really loved being on a stage and and I loved performing. But I think that the thing that kind of frustrated me about theater was that it was really just like one or two people's major ideas, like the director and the playwright and you could be a good actor and you could be a good performer, but it wasn't necessarily like your voice was shaping the production. And I really, really wanted to do that. And I think when I saw spoken word, what what made it really beautiful for me was that you didn't really need anything. All you needed was paper and a pen and you could, anybody could do it. And so it felt like very accessible in a way that I think other art forms maybe didn't. And I just really, really wanted to do it. So your first book after uh, was just published. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about what the collection is about? The collection really is about um, a kind of problematic relationship that I had with a male partner that was pretty abusive, both around in terms of sexual assault, but also um, in terms of like verbal stuff. And so the book kind of explores poems that are related to that experience, not just in that relationship, but other things that I've had. And so a lot of it is about body and about having your body unmade and then putting it back together and kind of um, just really details like and explores um, issues of sexual assault. Um, Can you talk about some common themes that you explore in your work? In my work right now, I'm exploring a lot of things about family and about um, being a part of the, you know, Pakistani, Kashmiri and Muslim diaspora and just thinking about what it means to grow up in America um, and also what it means to be an orphan and grow up in America um, without uh, or kind of like understanding my relationship to this country and also understanding my relationship to my countries of origin um, and and trying to figure out things about my family. Do you need poetry to sort of navigate your identity, or does, or does poetry need you and your identity, if that makes sense? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I hope poetry needs me. That would be awesome. <laughs> I think that, um, for me, poetry was an instrumental way in learning to talk about my own identity and learning to talk about my life experiences. Like, for example, we we just kind of briefly talked about my parents, Um, but I grew up as an orphan. So my parents died when I was really, really young, which I think made it interesting trying to think about who I was because so much of the way that I learned my identity then was not through like 
not always through a positive way, but just through a negative way in which the media portrayed me and or portrayed people like me, especially after September 11th. And I think it was, you know, through poetry was a way of kind of exploring some of that hurt, but also exploring some of the joys of being, um, you know, Pakistani and Kashmiri and from an immigrant background and an orphan and all of these different things that are vastly, vastly complicated. And so I think for me, I think that, you know, my identity is kind of in everything that I do. It's because it's who I am. Right. And I think that's that's true for all of us is we see the world. We see um, everything around us through the lens of our different intersecting identities. And so my poetry, I think, in a lot of ways is reflective of my identity because of that. Um, And I think that we're seeing this really beautiful moment in contemporary poetics in which a lot more stories of, of, you know, from voices of color, um, marginalized voices are being heard or are being, you know, put into the limelight. And I think that that's a really beautiful thing because for so long, our voices and our stories and our narratives were excluded from mainstream poetic discourse. And I think we're kind of pushing against that. And that's not to say that we've completely succeeded, but it's to say that there's a movement in which people are very much trying. Um, And I'm really honored to be a part of that movement. And in, in that way, I think, you know, poetry needs all of us. Poetry needs all of our stories and our voices um, and kind of in an attempt to break the the kind of elite standards that poetry has been confined to for so long. Yeah. So in that vein, like what, how does, what is the experience of like being a person of color in a literary landscape that largely might not reflect who you are? I think that it can be really frustrating um, sometimes, you know, especially when, And I'm sure that, you know, a lot of people feel this way about different things like academia or job markets or whatever. But when sometimes when you're the only person or you're like the one person at the table, it can feel really lonely. And then there's this incredible pressure to get everything right. And if you like mess something up or if you, you know, like to to be a spokesperson for everybody is just not a good position to be in. You know, you want to be the spokesperson for yourself and for your lived experience. And I think I tell my students that often is like, you know, we are the experts of our own experiences and therefore we should be in charge of authoring our image and writing, you know, the poetry that talks about our lives. Um, and I think that, you know, when I first graduated from college, I was, it was really hard to think about navigating the literary landscape, which is often, I think, so full of rejection. You know, um, there's all these stories about people who submitted their books or their poems over and over and over and were, were rejected time and time again. And I think that um, that was a really kind of daunting thing for me. And me and my friends created a poetry collective of poets of color, um, across the nation. And it was just a thing, a way of trying to go against that and trying to create a family of uh, poets of color who could support each other in navigating the literary landscape. I'm so glad you brought up like the organizations that serve writers of color, because I was actually going to ask you about um, how how does like how does one assert yourself or oneself in a space like that? Because it can feel really daunting and just sort of like especially as a person of color growing up in a white dominant culture it's like you know you're like your whole lived life is trying to like learn how to fit in and not just fit in but 
break in to systems where um, historically you've been pushed out or left out. So it, it's like to think about it in terms of like the, the literature world, it just seems um, it's like it's it's really it's it's uh, it's really opaque. Like it's really hard to penetrate and get through. Um, like how do you sort of uh, how do you keep going, I guess, in, in, like in, in the face of all of that? How do you keep going? Yeah, I totally agree. I think that it is really, really hard to penetrate or get through the kind of terrain, of the literary terrain, because I think like it's especially hard as in, in the literary world because it can be so elitist already and then it's all white and it's like all of these kind of vanguards that are meant to keep you out. And I think that um, I keep going because we have to, right? Like we have to say yes to each other. We have to believe in each other and we have to kind of break these narratives because these narratives are actually really, really damaging. Like for some people they're like, oh, does it really matter? It's one literary journal or it's this one thing. Like it's a niche market. Nobody really cares. And it's like, yeah, it's a niche market, but actually it's a microcosm of the larger world, right? Like we live in a world in which um, people of color's lives are being erased daily and they're being erased because our society and our media likes to portray um people of color as though we're not real, as though we we don't deserve full narratives and full characters and full stories. And I think it's our jobs to push against that. And when, and when we meet resistance, you know, when they say no, it's our jobs to create the spaces in which we can say yes. Oh, (laughs) Fatima, that was so beautiful. I'm so glad you exist and that your art exists like truly. Um, so uh, there's a, this is another question I've been brewing on in terms of like, um, uh, writers or artists who are children of immigrants. Um, did you, is, is English your first language? That's a a great question. So English is my native language. It's the language that I speak the most in. And when I was growing up, like my family all spoke Urdu and Punjabi, um, and so I understand both of those language very well, and almost to the point where when I'm at home, I can't really differentiate when my family is speaking what language. You know, they're just—it's just I know what they're saying, and it's just like kind of the language of home. But I always answered back in English, which I think is like a thing that happens with some immigrant families. Is like you just the newer generation like will answer in English or will answer in the kind of um, the, the language of the place that they're surrounded by. And so I actually don't really speak Urdu and I'm, um, or Punjabi and I'm trying to learn it right now. Um, and then also my family, you know, we're Muslim and I could read, like I learned how to read Arabic very, very young. And I learned how to read Arabic so that I could read the Quran and I would read it over and over and not necessarily understand the meaning behind it. Um, but it was like a practice of, I knew how to read English. I knew how to read Arabic. Um, and I, you know, had this lang- these two other languages around me all the time, but I wasn't necessarily speaking them. So this is like a really kind of selfish question from, from my, on my part. But um, like as a person where like, I, I mean, my, my first language isn't English. But like now my entire life is English, right? And, like, and I do the same thing that you do where when I'm with my family, I speak like this broken um, Cantonese Mandarin thing. Um, and, and, and it's even more complicated because my parents are, even though we're ethnically Chinese, they're from Vietnam. And so um, 
but yet they've completely um, like fluffed off Vietnamese uh, because they don't want that to be part of their identity. So like language plays such a big role in in you know who we are and how we navigate who we are. And it, this is a question that I've been thinking about for myself as as a writer who writes in English. Um, do you do you often think about like what it like I I I think I'm asking writers because I want them to tell me the answer. But <laughs> do you often think about um, sort of what it means to write in English, if that makes sense? Yes, I think about it all the time, and I think about you know when when we're talking about decolonizing our our minds, then what does it mean to be writing a writer who's writing in English, right? What does it mean to be a writer who's writing in English, who's against systems of colonization, who's against systems of racism, of imperialism, of, of oppression in, in those systematic ways? And um, I think that's like a huge reason why I'm learning to, why I'm trying to teach myself how to um, speak Urdu. And it's not necessarily to just be able to um, write in Urdu, but it's to be able to communicate with, um, my people, you know, in some ways and to, to be able to kind of preserve that part of, of myself and my identity rather than just letting it be assimilated away. And something I've noticed in my own writing over the past year is I've been actively introducing Urdu words into my, um, poems. So like I'll write a poem and, a lot of the words will be in Urdu or in Punjabi and they won't be, they won't be translated. Like I'm not in, I'm not going to translate them at the end. They're just going to kind of exist in the, in the, on the page. Um, and it's kind of up to the reader to either just read them and infer what they mean or to look them up, you know? Um, and I think in a way that's kind of, to me, like a way of, pushing against that, you know, colonization or, or, or kind of the overwhelming prevalence of English across the world is just to be like, you know what, I, I'm going to honor my language the best I can. And I hope that in my life, I will continue to honor the language, the languages of the places that I come from and the people who, you know, who have raised me or the people who, who were my ancestors or who kind of like laid the framework um, and I think especially as an orphan, that's really, really important to me when I think about having kids or having um, a family or, you know, continuing a, a life in which writing and words are so important to me. I, I have to ask myself the question, like, which, you know, words and which um, which language and, and how can I make sure that I'm putting priority on the one on the ones that um have the most danger of being lost. Ah, oh, so beautifully put. <laughs> um, so I guess this is actually a really great time for you to read uh, a piece of yours. So I'm going to read a piece that I think kind of reflects some of the joy of being in from an immigrant family and a joy of being um, in my particular family. Um, and it's about Old Country Buffet. Old Country Buffet was where my family went on the days we saved enough money. Everybody was in a good mood. Even Mamu, our uncle who never smiled or took off his coat and dyed his hair black every two weeks so we couldn't tell how old he was, though his love for Jurassic Park, Charlie Chaplin, and the sound of music convinced us he might be hatched from an egg. 
We marched single file towards the gigantic red lettering across the grueling gravel parking lot to announce our arrival. We, children, carrying our rectangle backpacks brimming with homework, calculators, and Lisa Frank trapper keepers, for we knew this was a day without escape, spread out across all the booths possible while our family ate and ate and ate and snuck food into the Tupperware they smuggled into the restaurants and no matter how we begged and whined or the waitress yelled or threatened to charge us more money, we weren't leaving until my greedy ass family had their fill. Oh, old country, the only place we could get dessert and eat as much of it as we wanted before our actual meal. The only place we didn't have to eat all the meat on our plates or else we were accused of being wasteful, told our husbands would have as many pimples as rice we left behind. Here, our family reveled in the American way of waste. Manifest destiny our way through the mac and cheese, casseroles and green beans, mythical foods we had only heard about from the TV shows where the American children rolled their eyes in disgust. Here, we learned how to say, I too have had meatloaf and hate it, evidence we could bring back to the lunchroom as we guessed what the other kids ate and they scoffed at our biryani. Here, the adults told us if we didn't like the cake, we could eat the ice cream or jello or strawberry shortcake. We could get a whole plate just to try a bite and turn up our noses, and that was fine. Here, we loosened the drawstrings on our shavar kameez and gained 10 pounds. Here, we arrived at the beginning of lunch hour and stayed until dinner approached, until they made us leave. Here, we learned how to be American and say, today, we got the money and we're here to stay. You're listening to Propaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're exploring identity and immigration through the eyes of people who grew up in the United States and Canada with immigrant parents. A few years ago, I went to go see this movie called Papers. I see a lot of movies, but this screening felt really special. My mom, out of desperation, she brought me to this country and she had left everything in Jamaica to come here. She had sold whatever she had. And I always, you know, I always describe my mom as a lioness, you know. Who, who was willing and is willing to do anything for her children. Papers is the story of undocumented youth in the United States and the challenges they face as they turn 18 without legal status. At the premiere I attended, the theater was packed primarily with young, Latino, undocumented people, many of them passionate activists, who saw themselves or their friends in the documentary. That film, Papers, was made by director Ann Galiski and producer Rebecca Shine in collaboration with a group of immigrant youth. Anne and Rebecca recently produced a second film, 14, which explores how the United States policy of birthright citizenship came to be, how, if you're born here, you become a citizen automatically. The complicated reality of being a citizen kid born to undocumented parents has shaped the lives of millions of Americans. 
Anne herself, it turns out, is the daughter of a large family of undocumented immigrants, Ukrainian refugees who fled Stalin in the 1930s. Anne has a worn black and white photo from that time that shows her dad, her grandma, and her uncles and aunts in immigration detention at the U.S. border. I asked Anne to come into the studio to talk about that photo, her family's story, and how their undocumented history has impacted her life's work as a filmmaker. So, Anne, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you, Sarah. Thanks for having me. Um, You're holding a photo. Can you tell me about the photo? Can you tell us what this photo is? Yes, this is one of our prized family heirlooms in the Galiski family. It is um, a photograph of my grandmother, Marcelina, um, and my aunts and uncles and my dad um, sitting on her lap. I could tell you that their their ages. This was taken when they were in immigration detention. This photo was taken in 1935. And so they're they're in immigration detention in 1935. And in the United like, States, in El Paso. And this is like an official government photo that's taken. This is an official government photo. I'd really like to see it in the official file, and that's what I'm. You know, I'm a. I, I'm contacting. I'm writing to the National Archives. It's not there, but it's probably in the. USCIS records, and so we're we're trying to get. I want to see this in the file. So, how old are the people in this photo, and what do they look like? So, my grandmother sitting in the middle. I bet she's about in her late thirties, and there are five little kids around her. Uh, my uncle Tony is the eldest. Then Helen. Tony's probably uh, thirteen. Helen, then Vera, then Joe, and my dad, who was four years old at the time, is sitting on my grandmother's lap. Um, they look all scrubbed up and ready for this official photograph, um, and they look really quite serious. So your family is originally from the Ukraine? They are originally from the Ukraine. So how did your grandparents and their five kids from the Ukraine wind up in immigration detention in El Paso, Texas. That's a great story. So, and this is one I grew up hearing, and this is one of the reasons I'm so interested in the immigration, in immigration stories in the United States, because this was our pioneer story. Um, I grew up in Los Angeles. I knew my grandfather. I, I didn't know my grandmother. All of my aunts and uncles were nearby. When we had get-togethers, they would talk about it. Um, it was, you know, it was never hidden from me. Um, I, you know, remember doing school projects from when, from elementary through high school, college and graduate school. Um, so my grandparents, um, lived in the Ukraine in a town called Zhytomyr. I've never been there. Um, some family members have gone to visit and, um, he was conscripted during World War I. He fought uh, in the Tsar's army. He was wounded. Uh, he went the, the train to take him uh, away from the front, went through his town, and he jumped off. And he went to his village. And they said, what are you doing? You're going to get caught. You're away without leave. You need to go back. And so... He was trying to run away, and he went back. He went to the hospital, 
um, and he eventually was sent back to the front. He eventually ran away without leave again, and he was caught, and he was sent to Siberia. So he was in Siberia when the Russian Revolution happened, and they were going to camps, and the, the Bolsheviks were going to camps in Siberia and letting people out, and they said, we'll let you out if you fight for us. And I remember him. It's extraordinary that I knew him. I could hear this from him. And he said, Bolsheviks come. They said, you want to fight for us? We'll let you out. And he, we said, sure. <laughs> and so, you know, then he said, and then we all ran away to our village. And, um, and, so, and so the Bolsheviks liberated the camp and he said he'd fight for them and then was like, see you. I'm, yeah, basically. I'm going home, yes. finally. So they, they, they lived through, I don't know, a lot of details about the time of the revolution and right after. But they, um, he wasn't married at the time. He, he met my grandmother. They started a family. They had an extended family. Um, and it was during... Uh, they could see that things were getting bad. Um, they had a little farm. Um, there was a great deal of uh, collectivizing farms going on, and it, w- it would increase in the years after. Um, and a, a story of forced starvation in the Ukraine that is little known in the West, that I think is, is something that we really, I would really like to, to bring to light more. But they decided to leave extraordinary. They had four kids at the time. Uh, They didn't have much money. They made a plan to get out in 1928. They knew they wanted to come to the United States. I don't know, you know, what the, you know, sort of village gossip was uh, about where to go, but immigrants just like today kept in touch with each other and, but it would have had to be through, you know, letters that eventually maybe got somewhere. Um, you know, go to this place, look up this person. And so they, they bravely went on their own. These two adults and four kids uh, traveled uh, by train eventually across uh, Europe to Marseille. Um, they took a ship from Marseille to Veracruz in uh, southern Mexico, and knowing the whole time that they eventually wanted to come to the United States. But they knew enough way deep in the Ukraine that you, at that time, it was really hard to get in directly to the United States. They were going to go slowly, you know, if they needed to, through Mexico. And we we called my grandfather, Pop, and we said, Pop, well, why didn't you go to Canada? And he said, I was in Siberia. I don't want to be cold anymore. (laughs) So, I mean, that's really, I don't know if that's true, but I think it could be. It's really funny. So, you know, the family history was shaped by him having been in Siberia and not wanting to be cold. They ended up living in Mexico for seven years. They, um, I said in in a letter I wrote recently, they were befriended. They worked. They saved their money. They, I've heard stories about the different um, families who they became friends with. Um, the town where my dad was born, so my dad was born in a, in a town in Chihuahua, uh, Galeana. They, uh, my aunt uh, organized a number of trips to go to Galeana to go see if they could find anyone they remembered. And all these folks remembered them. You mean from- like years later? Yes, they remembered them from ni- from the 1930s. Extraordinary. 
Um, and so anyway, a long, a long and rambling story that they moved north, they worked, they were helped, I am sure, by so many people that I've heard, you know, stories about over the years. And I'm not sure what the impetus was to finally make the crossing into the U.S. Now it's the middle of the worldwide depression. Um, I don't know what, what the, how they came to that decision that this is the time. But they then had these five kids. Um, and this would have been the middle of the 1930s. This is 1935 at this point. So my grandfather went to Juarez um, across from El Paso and hired an uh, American attorney and told the whole situation and we want to get in. And this attorney said, well, you uh, need to buy some land so that you can be called a farmer. And you'll, and so he said, okay, I'll do it. And he, they bought some land, evidently, sight unseen in Arizona. This is how the story goes. Um, and the, you know, so they gave them all their money that they had saved over all these years. And then he went back to Galeana to get the family, to get prepared to, to make this move. Uh, I think it was about a month later. They go back to Juarez and the attorney was gone, the papers were gone, the money was gone, and those dreams were really dashed. Um, but let's just take a second there because, so your family has come all the way from the Ukraine. Mm -hmm. They're fleeing, uh, they're, they're fleeing starvation and consolidation of farms where farms are being taken away. They're fleeing conscription. They spend seven years at least trying to get to the United States. And then at that point, everything is taken away from them. Do you, have you ever talked to your family about how they felt at that point? You know, that part was just sort of understood, like, because the next part of the story was, of course, we're going to go. Like, it wasn't, um, there wasn't a mystery about it. It made perfect sense to all of us. And this is what I mean about growing up hearing the story. When I hear people talk about uh, quote unquote illegal immigration. I think okay. I let's hear the whole story. I wonder what happened. Um, I don't know how many days they stayed in Juarez before they made this decision. Um, but he was pop. My grandfather was convinced that if he could cross and talk to the immigration authorities, he could persuade them to let them stay. So they hired. Uh, coyotes and and um, one of my dad's earliest memories um, and the older siblings talk about it too was riding uh, horses across the Rio Grande in the middle of the night and then they remember you know going and and the whole family went to this little shed and they stayed there in the morning and my grandfather left and he went to find immigration and he said I'm here here's what happened um, I want to explain the, the story to you. And, of course, he was arrested. And that's when uh, they went and got the family and they put them in um, some kind of a, a charity, Catholic charity house where this photo was taken. And he was held in, in immigration detention on his own for about a month. Um, they're trying to get the story, figure it out. And this 
This I only learned in the last few years that at that point, at the end of that month, the U.S. authorities didn't say, okay, you're cool, you know, we found some record of some land or, you know, they didn't say, oh, sure, you can stay. They were ordered deported then. They were asked to leave then and they didn't. And uh, it sounds like your family has a long history of um, ignoring the instructions of authority figures. (laughs) (laughs) I think I need to remind my parents of that. (laughs) I grew up with this. (laughs) You know, when 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 the uh, Russian, when the czarist army tells your grandfather to keep fighting, he says, "Mm, I'm going to go home. And when the the Bolsheviks say you should fight for us, your grandfather says, "Mm, I'm going to go home. And now at this point, when the United States Immigration and Customs Enforcement says, get out of here, he says, "Mm, no, this is my home now. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. No, this is my home. And they stayed. And do you know how they escaped from Customs Enforcement? Well, I imagine at that time they're was not a big budget. There certainly was no fence at the border. Um, there was probably a booth somewhere on a bridge. Um, and it wasn't about, I mean, they basically were um, released and asked to leave. They weren't taken across the border. So at that point, they went to Arizona and then on to Los Angeles. And like immigrants do all over the country, they found the people from the Ukraine. They found the people, they found some people from their own village. My uncle Tony ended up marrying someone from his village in the Ukraine, who he re-met again in Los Angeles. Um, So did your family ever face deportation again? Because at this point they were were in the country without legal documentation, all five kids and the parents. Exactly. Well, and, you know, my, my dad is growing up. He, he, you know, he was born in Mexico. He doesn't remember much of that. Um, he certainly isn't identifying with the Ukraine. He's going to high school um, at right after he graduated from high school. Everyone's, you know, all the other kids are older than he is. There's another very sad tangent to the story. Um, that's a separate story, but it's that my grandmother and the new baby daughter were both killed in a car accident mm. um, at the beginning of World War II, um, hit by a drunk driver. That's a that's a separate and sad story. So they got through, they muddled through that tragedy, and then um, some years later. At the beginning of the Korean War, their file was reopened because there was a renewed Red Scare. They were from the Ukraine. They uh, were accused of being disloyal to the United States. They had already been ordered deported and hadn't left. And they received these deportation notices in the mail. Now, I don't know why all those years they never, I don't know what their interactions were with immigration in all those years, but the older sons had been in the military. The In the United States military? In the U.S. military. 
And so when they're, you know, they were all, they all got these letters and then they all fixed it in different ways. So, uh, my aunt Helen was married to a serviceman. And because of that, that helped. I've seen my aunt Vera's documents, um, that, I mean, this really blew my mind, actually. It was when, during the making of papers that I saw this. It says, because of the hardship um, of your citizen daughter and citizen husband, and because you are of the white race, it basically says, I mean, the white privilege is spelled out right there in her papers, um, we do not recommend deportation. Wow. So so at some point, this, this, this is your Aunt Vera? Yes, Gets this letter. Well, she so they all had to do their case and present their case uh, individually. And Vera's case was she had a, a daughter born in the U.S., a citizen daughter. She was married to a citizen who had also been in the service. And this other mind-blowing thing that I did not grow up hearing, which was the stamp of white privilege, um, really shocked me and, and depressed me. Um, but to not acknowledge it is disingenuous. My dad, the youngest, you know, so he was this East L.A. kid. He went to his hearing, his immigration hearing by himself. And he said, I don't need, I don't need any help. I'll just go. And the hearings officer wound him up and tried to catch him in something that could be perceived as a lie and um, he said, you might have to edit this out, aw shit, into, you know, the microphone. And the hearings officer turned off the tape and yelled at him, basically, for disrespecting him. And in the file wrote that he recommended deportation to the country of his birth because he was a person of bad moral character for saying that during his interview. Wow. So then he was really in trouble. And this wasn't just an old deportation notice that his parents got. This was one for him. Deportation to the country of his birth. Which Me is Mexico. Mexico. They had a friend who was a priest, and the priest said, let's try to get you into the army. And he said, I could get myself into the army. And so he went to army recruiting. There was a draft on. And, but he couldn't wait for the, to be called up. He needed to enlist. And um, so he went to recruiting and said, I need to go and I need to go now. And this is why. And uh, they did take him. And early on, in, in, well, he was in boot camp still, um, his commanding officer wrote a letter, which we have, that says that he is a person of good moral character and they recommend that he be naturalized in the United States. So he took a route that of joining the military, which was part of what the DREAM Act would have allowed it had it passed uh, in 2010. One option was college, one option was joining the military. So he's been with me to events uh, with our film papers and he says my advice for, for young people who are trying to, you know, get their affairs in order, you know, don't don't swear in your hearing. <laughs> <laughs> 
So you grew up hearing these stories, and then you went on to become a filmmaker yourself, and you've made two films that deal with with issues of immigration. And the first one is called Papers, and the second one is called 14. And they both revolve around, um, they're both documentaries that revolve around people's real stories of, of immigrating to the United States or... Um, being born to people who who immigrated to the United States and trying to become legal citizens and the hardships involved with that. Um, can you talk about how your experience hearing these stories of your entire family coming here without papers have has influenced your work as a filmmaker and the stories that you want to tell on screen? Um, it has everything to do with it. I, I feel like um, as a documentary filmmaker, Hopefully one day I'll make a film that's not about immigration, but that day isn't coming anytime soon. Um, this demonizing of immigrants, I absolutely don't, I can't get my head around it. Um, if we didn't come from immigrants, we came from enslaved people or Native Americans. That's our story. And uh, it's just a matter of which which generation we were built, you know, born in. I think at its root, um, what I'm trying to expose is sort of a white supremacy that we've become comfortable with that is absolutely unacceptable to me. Well, that point you bring up about how our immigration system is built fundamentally on white supremacy is really explored in these films. And can you talk about how that issue specifically is explored in papers and in 14? I'll talk a little bit about 14 since it's a lot of my mind. So this film is about birthright citizenship. The 14th Amendment says that if you're born here, you're a citizen. I can... I do know that sentence word for word, but I won't say it. <laughs> no, say it, say it. <laughs> All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and of the state wherein they reside. One of the best sentences in the Constitution. It's the first uh, sentence in the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment came about after the Civil War because we needed to make the freed slaves citizens. Uh, the 13th Amendment freed the slaves. The 14th Amendment is when you look at um, decisions in the Supreme Court, human rights cases, it's all about what the 14th Amendment says. Um, and, the, and the birthright citizenship clause is just one sentence of it. An absolutely brilliant sentence. And I think it is one of the things that actually makes this country great. Within a few generations, more or less, people do integrate. Um, if you travel around the world, this is not the case. I mean, we, I mean, I, I tried to shy away from American exceptionalism. However, there are some cultural things about how we do things that I'm so proud of. And that is that it's not based on where your parents were born. It's based on where you were born. Um, so, but to get to this point in our history, um, a slave family, Dred and Harriet Scott, um, had to sue, were suing for their freedom in Missouri, and, and hundreds of people did this, I didn't know, 
even in the St. Louis court alone, there were at least 300 cases of folks who had been taken north, um, you know, basically against the rules of slavery, and they they sued for their own freedom. The case ends up going to the Supreme Court after, you know, seven years. And because of the times and bad luck, it ends up at the Supreme Court, and in one of the worst decisions the Supreme Court has ever made, uh, they did not uh, grant them their freedom. In fact, said, you can't bring a case because you're not citizens, and you can never be citizens because you're from Africa. So that made it very clear that after the Civil War, something needed to be done to have a, a broader understanding of what citizenship was. If you look at any of the rhetoric going on right now, with especially with the Republican presidential campaign, it's loaded. It's not even coded racism. It's pretty blatant to me. Um, there's a term that is used called accidental birthright citizenship that I hope to do some writing about because it's this idea, and this is coming from the far right, that some people are meant to be born here somehow and some people weren't. And if that is not some kind of crazy notion of manifest destiny and white supremacy, I don't know what is. So they're saying that if your parents are undocumented, you were, you're an, you know, you're, it's an accident that you're a citizen. Well, why am I a citizen? I don't remember as some kind of ethereal being deciding to be born on this side of a border. I mean, uh, of course, if there's anything, it's everyone is accidentally born where they're born. You can seek out Angeliski's film Papers, Stories of Undocumented Youth, and 14, both of which you can host a screening for if you want to get involved. Look them up at PapersTheMovie.com and 14TheMovie.com. When politicians and pundits talk about immigrants, they far too often use language that makes it seem like immigrants are other, not real Americans or not able to be trusted. Their histories and experiences and native languages, those things should all be pushed aside in favor of the melting pot of English and America. But that's ludicrous. First-generation families are strong and real and complicated and beautiful, as the stories on today's episode show. Valuing the culture we grow up with is tied to valuing our own identity and ourselves, even as our definitions of those things changes. Thanks to everyone on the show who shared their personal intimate stories, especially in a cultural landscape that's not always welcoming. Thanks to Julie, TK, Belinda, Fatima, and Anne. Thank you. This episode was sponsored by the Feminist Sticker Club. Remember, you can get a fun feminist sticker in the mail every month for only $2.50. 
Join Feminist Sticker Club and you'll help support independent artists and feminist causes. Learn more at feministstickerclub.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Have you noticed that we don't shy away from tough conversations and that we cover just about every topic you can think of? That's because as a nonprofit independent media outlet, Bitch Media is entirely supported by thousands of folks like you, not some big corporation or a deep-pocketed donor with a hidden agenda. If you love tuning in each week, please pitch in at bitchmedia.org podcast. And be sure to mention propaganda or backtalk when you donate. We featured a lot of interesting music on this show. Several songs in this episode are by the artist Ashni, a singer, songwriter, and pianist who grew up in the U.S. listening to the record collection of her North Indian parents. Look up her excellent EP at ashnimusic.com. That's A-S-H-N-I music.com. You also heard some traditional Polish music after my interview with Ann Galiski. It was a Polish polka that her dad would hear at weddings in Los Angeles as a kid. Linguist Julie Sedevi recommended some traditional Czech folk music that we played too. That was a song from folk group Moravanka. Papaganda is produced by the team here at Bitch Media. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Additional music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions. Look up their creative and minimalist sounds by going to Google and typing in sessions.blue. And the show is produced by Alex Ward at the studios of X-Ray FM, an independent radio station in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening.